uh, as human beings, we can't help it. We, you know, we can't read minds. We, you know, we don't have x-ray vision. We're kind of stuck having to look on the outside of things and make our appraisals of situation based on outward appearances. That can often get us in trouble. I've, I shared this story years ago, but it's just the perfect Sunday for it. Um, one year, just before Christmas, while I was teaching in, in Missouri, the, the school I taught at decided to have an ugly sweater contest with, uh, with the staff, the teachers. All you had to do to enter was wear your ugliest Christmas-themed sweater on the given day, and the kids were going to judge the, uh, the winner. And like the third day before Christmas break, the special education teacher who was with me first period in my classroom, she walked in and she was wearing a great candidate. She had this sweater, had uh, squares on it, and inside each square, it was this uh, uh, cardigan button-down thing with three giant crocheted buttons. And in each square, there was a three-dimensional snowman that had like a top hat sticking out or a carrot nose or a scarf hanging off. It was great. And I took one look at that sweater and I said, hey, ugly sweater contest. And she said, that's tomorrow. <laughs> at which point I melted into a puddle of shame that the custodians later cleaned up. Okay, when we just have the outward appearance of things to look on, we can get in trouble. Dr. Dale Davis, in his uh, really good commentary on 1 Samuel, he says that today's passage is all about the peril of people's impressions. The center of probably this whole book is found in today's passage, the most famous half verse in this book for sure, and one of the most famous in the whole Old Testament. God doesn't see the way people see. For God does not see as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearances, but God looks on the heart. What we're going to see in today's passage is that's true throughout the whole thing. Let's read our passage, 1 Samuel chapter 16. We're going to read the first 13 verses of that chapter. They read this way. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected Saul from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among the sons of Jesse. But Samuel said, how can I go? When Saul hears of it, he'll kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. You shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me the one whom I designate to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said. And he came to Bethlehem and the elders of the city came trembling to meet Samuel and said, do you come in peace? He said, in peace, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. 
consecrate yourselves and, and come with me to the sacrifice. And Samuel also consecrated Jesse and Jesse's sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they entered, Samuel looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. This is the guy. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And God said, or and Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Or maybe that's God who said that. Then Jesse made uh, Shammah pass by, and he said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. And then Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, are these all the children? And he said, well, there remains the youngest, but behold, he's tending the sheep. Then Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. So Jesse sent and brought his youngest son in. Now he was ruddy, with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, this is he. Then Samuel, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. There's our passage. And again, the most famous sentence is also a summary of this whole passage. God might be able to look on hearts. The rest of us are stuck looking on outward appearances. That's what we see throughout the passage. And the hero of the book thus far, Samuel, is not immune from this either. Samuel starts this passage stuck looking on outward appearances. As, as chapter 16 opens, we find the prophet Samuel grieving, mourning. He's all tore up over the way things have gone down in Israel, especially concerning Israel's first king, a guy named Saul. God has made clear that he has rejected Saul as king. And this has caused considerable grief inside of Samuel. And there are some good reasons for that. Saul's tenure as king turned out to be an abject failure. It started off good, but Saul got very quickly self-focused, self-willed. He wouldn't pursue the Lord. So God has rejected him. But here's the problem. God may have rejected Saul as being king, but as of yet, Saul has not rejected Saul as being king. Saul is still in control of the government. Saul's still got the political and military power. So God has chosen someone else, we've been told, but what's that mean for Israel? Samuel has to think, are we headed for a civil war here? How, how much damage is going to continue to be done because God allowed Saul to be king? So he's, he's tore up. 
He's mourning. We don't know how much time has passed between last week's passage, the end of chapter 15, and this week's passage where we start this morning. We don't know how much time that Samuel has been mourning, but God has decided it's long enough. Because the Lord begins our passage saying to Samuel, how long are you going to be stuck mourning for Saul? Get your horn and go. God is ready to move things forward. Now, I want you to notice some things about this. God does not tell Samuel, why are you so sad? You don't have any reason to be sad. It's not what he says. God knows the circumstances around Samuel's life and around the nation of Israel ain't great. He doesn't say you don't have any reason to feel bad. He just says, how long are you going to let those circumstances keep you from the stuff I have for you to do? God says, it's time to go. God is ready to move things forward toward the solution to Israel's problems. And God normally uses people to get his stuff accomplished on earth. And so God says, Samuel, he's encouraging him, sort of not so gently, honestly, to stop being paralyzed by the stuff that makes you... We have a word for Samuel's condition. You know what it is? The dude's depressed. He's depressed. And he has reason to be. And God says, how long are you going to let the painful stuff that has happened keep you from from the purposes I have for your life? How long? God's ready to move things forward, but he wants Samuel to participate. So God tells Samuel, get your uh, ox horn flask, which sounds like a really cool thing to have. I don't know what I would ever do with one, but it just seems, seems like a cool thing to have. Get your horn and fill it with oil because I want you to anoint the next king. Samuel has an objection. Samuel interrupts God. He says, how can I go do that? When Saul hears about it, he'll kill me. Because all Samuel can do is look on the outside of things. He's got a point. If you've been here over the last several weeks, what is, what's the relationship like between Samuel and Saul right now? Not great. It's gotten pretty adversarial, right? So Samuel says, uh, Lord, when he hears that I've anointed someone else to take his job, how do you think he's going to respond? You don't have to be the supreme being of the universe to believe that Saul won't be happy. And what happens next, in my opinion, is that God answers Samuel's objection by refusing to answer Samuel's objection. Okay, there's a couple different ways you can read, understand what comes next. So he says, get your horn, go, I want you to anoint the next king like you anointed the first king. He says, whoa, 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 Saul will kill me. And you might understand this this way. This would be a fine interpretation, and there are wise 
Bible-believing scholars who take this interpretation, who will say what, they, what God does next when God says, take a heifer with you and say, I'm just traveling to do a sacrifice. They would say, God is appeasing Samuel's fears. He's giving Samuel a, a logical reason to be traveling. Samuel says, man, if, if I get pulled over by Saul's forces, however that happened back then, and they say, what are you doing out here with that horn of anointing oil? God says, well, you just tell him, see, I've got this heifer, and I'm just going to do a sacrifice, nothing to see here, officer. And they'll say, all right, move along. I don't think that's what's happening. I think God ignores Samuel and just goes right on. These were always God's instructions. Here's the way I think this went down. Uh, God says, all right, how long are you going to be stuck mourning? I'm ready to move things forward. The solution to Israel's problems in the real king and the chosen king. Get your horn of oil. Go, I will show you. I'm gonna, so you can anoint the new king. God, 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 I can't do that. Saul will kill me. God says, excuse me, I'm talking. Get a heifer. Head for Bethlehem. I think God is, I don't think God answers him at all. I think this is God saying, Samuel, you have to remember who calls the shots around here. You're starting to sound like Saul. Saul only did the stuff Saul thought would work out good for Saul. Get your horn of oil. Get a heifer for a sacrifice. Head for Bethlehem. I find this so instructive. Because Samuel is, he's depressed. And so many of us can understand this so well. He is dejected, he's tore up, he's sad, he can't believe how all of the events in his life have worked out. And then his anxiety, his fear, his pessimism about what's coming next Keeps him frozen where he's at. Isn't that what depression and anxiety do to us? I hate where I'm at. I hate how things have worked out. But I can't go forward because I'm sure whatever happens next is going to stink worse than what just happened before. So we get stuck in this place where I hate where I am and I can't do anything else. Sometimes I think we need to hear God saying, How long not that not that you don't have reason to be sad because you do i know my child but i have stuff for you to do and i can advertise my sufficiency if you work through your pain and fear and if nothing else friends be comforted in this the heroes of the faith were not immune to being stuck in depression and anxiety. So that's the task. Samuel gets the message. Gets his horn of oil. Gets his, takes his heifer. Heads for Bethlehem. As he gets there, gets close, the elders of Bethlehem apparently have gotten word that the prophet Samuel is coming to town. And a really thing is 
seems really strange at first. They're really scared. They come out to meet him and they're trembling in fear. And they ask, what are your intentions? Are your intentions peaceful? Why would they be scared of Samuel? He's an old man. He's a hero of the faith. What was the last thing Samuel just did in chapter 15? Does anybody remember what he just did? He hacked a prisoner of war to pieces with a sword. Um, so maybe, maybe they think Samuel, this dude has lost it, right? Uh, and everyone, the word has traveled of that. Word has traveled that the king and the prophet are not friends. Maybe they just don't want any trouble. Why are they so scared? Because the only thing they can do is look on the outside, outward appearance of things. This violent dude who's an enemy of the king is coming to our town Samuel assures them, I come in peace. I've come to do a sacrifice. Um, and why don't you guys come along, get yourselves consecrated. According to the law, before you could participate in a sacrifice, there were some washings you had to do. There's a clothes change you had to do. Take care of all that stuff. You come be our guest at the sacrifice. He finds Jesse, this man of Bethlehem, where he's supposed to go. And, and he says, Jesse, you and your sons get all cleaned up in the right way. Uh, and you come to the sacrifice also. As that special meal is to take place, a bit of a banquet, a big deal. People didn't get to eat meat, and they're going to have beef. Amen? Right? This is a good news. And so as they are ready for this meal, we see Samuel looking on the outside of things again. You know why? Because he's a person. It's what we do. As the, the sons of Jesse begin to file in, he looks at one named Eliab and goes, oh man, look at that one. That's probably the one right there. Surely the Lord's anointing stands here before the Lord. This has got to be the guy. What is it about Eliab that makes Samuel think this way? Well, first we'll learn next chapter that Eliab is the oldest, and the oldest son was almost always the leader. Also, um, he's, he's apparently tall and handsome. He looks the part. So Samuel goes, it's got to be one of these guys. I'll bet it's him. Which is why God says what he says to Samuel. This is God whispering in Samuel's ear, so to speak. Verse 7, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance, his height, his stature, how he looks, for I, have, I haven't chosen him or I've rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearances. The Lord looks at the heart. God because he's God and he can look at hearts, he knows Samuel's thoughts. When Samuel thinks, I'll bet this is the guy, God knows he's thinking that. And so he breaks in to Samuel's thoughts. Samuel's like, all right, look how tall and handsome Eliab is and he's the oldest son. That's, that'd be a great pick. He's got to be the guy. And God breaks in and says, basically, Samuel, haven't we done the pick a guy to be king because he's super tall and handsome thing? Have we done that already? 
How'd that work out? Not great. People look at the outward appearance of things. I don't. And this is sort of God's way of saying, Samuel, if you remember, you didn't want Saul to be king. Right? Even though he was tall and handsome. The whole reason God picked Saul to be the king of Israel is not because God made a mistake and God thought, well, he's the tallest and most handsomestest guy in the whole country. He'd probably be good. Oh, guess I was wrong. That's not the way this went down. Israel wanted a king like the rest of the world's kings. God says, I'll give you the ideal. Right? The winner of the Mr. Israel pageant, 1000 BC, Saul. And it was a train wreck. God says, we've already done that. That's not, if you want a king that's different than the rest of the world's kings, you better use different criteria than the rest of the world uses. And we still use these criteria. I mentioned this when we studied uh, Saul's inauguration. Why don't, why don't we choose bald people to be president? Since we've had video and pictures available, we haven't saved Ike, but he was, he was Eisenhower. Come on. Why don't we have short people be president? Why don't we have um, overweight people be president? Why don't we have people be president who wear glasses full time? Because we look at the outward appearance of things. Why did Joe Biden get hair plugs a long time ago? It might be because he's shallow, but I'll bet it's more because he knows we are. Man looks at the outward appearance. Why do we spend so much time, so much effort, and so much money on our outward appearance of things. How we look physically, to be beautiful, to be handsome, to appear young. With what we have, what we drive, where we live, how we dress. Why? You know why? Because we know, what's the answer? Man looks at the outward appearance of things. God tells Samuel, that's not how I make appraisals of people. I look at the heart. Now, God doesn't say being tall or being good looking is a disqualification. Because we're going to learn in a little bit that David is quite a looker. He's easy on the eyes. It just doesn't enter into his thinking. It doesn't enter into the appraisal at all. It's not that God prefers homely people, unfortunately. It just doesn't enter into his decision-making. God looks at people's hearts. The inward stuff. God looks at our character. God looks at our integrity. God looks at our humility. Do we love God and love others? God looks at our motives Behind the things we do. Not just what we do and don't do. The motive behind it. God looks at the heart. 
And God proves that by choosing the one he chooses. He is yet unnamed. If we were reading this for the first time, we still wouldn't know who gets chosen to be king. But the, the parade of Jesse's sons continues. I picture this as sort of a receiving line where they, you know, because it's a huge deal that this is Samuel. This is a hero, a living legend. And all, Jesse brings his sons in and they, they get to uh, meet the prophet of God. And God says, nope, not him. Not him either. Ain't that one. Not him. Until... Seven of Jesse's sons have passed by and and seems like he's all out of sons. There's no sons left. This is really confusing to Samuel because Samuel is positive he heard the Lord correctly in verse 1. It's one of this guy's sons. So he asks him, you got any more sons around here? And Jesse says, well, I mean, there's the, the baby of the family. There's the youngest and This translation leaves out one word here. He says, behold, he's tending the sheep. That behold is, is, it means, looky here, pay attention to this. This is the important reason. This is why he's not here. He's tending sheep. Here's what Jesse says. First of all, somebody's got to watch my sheep. We can't just, sheep don't take care of themselves. So I couldn't invite everybody. And second, he's tending sheep, which means I don't know where he is. It's not like he's in Jesse's pasture, you know, down by the, the, that one barn. It's fenced in, right? That's not the way this worked. Uh, he's just in the countryside. No telling where he is. No telling how long it would take to get, to get him here. But the light bulb goes on inside, inside Samuel. And Samuel goes, this must be the, the one. So he says, tell you what, nobody's eating any of this heifer until your youngest son gets here. We're not sitting down until he arrives. Nobody's eaten without that son. Verse 12, Jesse's unnamed youngest son arrives. He is, he's a looker, but he's not, he's not consecrated. He's not washed. He's got the, the, the sheep stink all over him. But he walks in. And you know, he's the only son that didn't garner an invite to this. This was a huge deal. And he's the only one that doesn't get an invite to the banquet. And God says, get your oil out, Samuel. This is the one. The one nobody else would pick. That's the one I pick. So Samuel gets up and he anoints David's head with this oil. So he's just got his dirty head and he's just got oil running all over him. And we're told intentionally so right there in front of his brothers, right there in front of his dad, everybody. I don't know if they know why David's being anointed. We're not told that they are told this, he's going to be the next king, but this is a big deal. The only things thus far in the Bible that have been anointed is one king. And other than that, it's stuff that is set apart for God's use in, his, in the tabernacle that's been destroyed by this time. So this was a big deal, whatever it means. And I, it's not an accident that the one God chooses is the one none of the rest of them 
would. Already in the Bible, in the Old Testament, by this point, God has a habit of picking the unlikely. He has a habit of picking not the oldest son, which is just the way the world worked then. He picked Seth, not Cain or Abel, who were older. He picked the rest of these not oldest. He picked Noah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Judah. None of them were the oldest. None of them were the one from the outside who seemed the best choice. And that, of course, points toward greatest, uh, David's greatest descendant, the anointed one, the chosen one, Jesus Christ, about whom Isaiah would say this, he had no stately form or majesty that we should look, be drawn to him. Like his appearance didn't make people want to be around him. He was despised. He was forsaken of men. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Like one uh, from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we did not esteem him. David, as we move forward, is going to be, it's called being a type of Christ. He is uh, like the prototype almost. Lots and lots of David's life is going to look like a shadow of Jesus' life who will be his, his descendant. And it starts right here. He doesn't seem like the one who would be a great king. Now, the last thing we're told about this youngest son of Jesse is important in this passage as well. I think this is the reason why David's name has not been used in the whole Bible till this half verse. So Samuel takes the horn of oil and anoints this unnamed son in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. And Samuel then went to Ramah. Okay, so David didn't get like the Samuel training wheels, right? Like Saul kind of did. He didn't get to hang out with the prophet. He got the Holy Spirit who rushed upon David. And that is great news, right? It is, but it may not be the great news in the way you might expect great news to be great news. And here's what I mean. David, the Holy Spirit of God, rushes upon David. But that doesn't mean that David's paths are all straight, that his problems are all fixed, that, that David gets the Holy Spirit doesn't mean like all of his socks have matches when he gets them out of the dryer now because I got the Holy Spirit and that's right, good things happen now in my life. David doesn't get the Holy Spirit so all his dreams come true. David gets the Holy Spirit so that he can survive the nightmare that's coming. Because, folks, we got 14 and a half chapters left of just this book. And most of them read like a nightmare for this guy. I mean, he's going to start with a bang. He's going to get challenged by a giant. And I don't want to give away that story, but it's a really cool thing that happens. Okay, come back. And you'll see what happens in two weeks. But he goes from being challenged by a giant to being hunted by the king. 
He's God's chosen. He's got the Holy Spirit. And he's going to spend 13 chapters scared, alone, hunted, hungry, feeling like God has forsaken him. His words, not mine. See, the Holy Spirit, because he's God, doesn't look on all those outward appearances. What does God look at? I'm going to ask that again. I'm going to ask for a little audience participation. The Holy Spirit, because He's God, doesn't look on all those outward circumstances. What does the Holy Spirit look at? The heart. See, here's what the Holy Spirit is sort of for in David's life. Not to make all David's dreams come true, to give David the heart to serve his God during the nightmare. In some ways, that's what we sign up for. If you came here this morning learning how to, to, to try to learn how God can make your life better, you may need to find a, a different church in some ways. Because as we walk and follow through David, anybody who thinks the last 13 chapters of 1 Samuel is God making that young man's life better does not know how to read a story. The Holy Spirit will never leave David and will empower him to continue to be faithful to the one who eventually will fix every problem. God will not always step in and save the day like he will with David and the giant. But he will always save our eternity. He will save the world Right? He will save us ultimately. I just don't think we can make a big enough deal about this. The Holy Spirit was with David from that day forward. That's the story of God choosing an unlikely young man to be the, the chosen king. It teaches us at least four things. First, God, God chooses the unlikely to serve him. You've got the right resume to serve God where he put you. God chooses, like the Apostle Paul a thousand years later, himself an extremely unlikely choice to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, but he wrote it this way better than I can say it. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. The stuff the world thinks is dumb, God uses to shame the stuff the world thinks is smart. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. The base, the regular, the lowly things of the world, and the despised God has chosen. He's chosen the things the world thinks are kind of have-nots, so that he may nullify the things, the haves. God chooses unlikely candidates to serve him. Always has. Always will. But God looks on hearts to see who's available for his use. 
God looks on hearts. He got a good one with David. He was a man who pursued God's heart. Now, that God sees our hearts doesn't just mean uh, God looks who is a good enough candidate to be his friend or anything like that. Just God sees what's in here. And positively, that can mean God sees my motives, my integrity, that I love him, that I will serve him. God wants to find hearts like that. But God also sees, like he did with Samuel, God sees your pain. God sees your hurt. God sees your loneliness. God sees your depression and anxiety. God sees that stuff too. Sometimes he will say, but how, how long is that going to be the reason why you don't serve me? Because if you will give me, my, give me your heart, you wait and see what I will do through the Holy Spirit within you, through somebody that's hurting and lonely and broken, who will pursue my heart. Third, God gives his spirit into our hearts. If you believe in Jesus Christ for your salvation, you are indwelt with the same spirit David got. And sort of unfortunately, and for the same reasons. <laughs> Not so or your hopes and dreams will come true. But God gives us spirits in our hearts so that we have the heart to serve him when it's really hard. And finally, this passage reminds us God's always ready to move forward in this passage to, to fix Israel's problems because I've got the good king on deck and ready. Those of us who have given our hearts to the Lord, we have the Holy Spirit to have the heart to serve him. It's not like we're going to go anoint a new king. The, the, the good king's already been anointed. And there is a world out there that needs the hope of knowing that king as their king. Ultimately, God is going to fix every problem through the good king. He was David's greatest descendant. His name is Jesus. I need him, you need him, and there's a whole world out there that needs him. But God just, he just looks for folks who, have, who can have the heart to serve him in that. And he says, so how long? How long? Until you are ready to be about the work I want you in. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for how your word all fits together and points to our Savior and our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who gives us the heart we need to glorify Christ in our lives. God, um, I know you have stuff for us to do as a church corporately and as individuals, as families. So God, as we prepare for communion, as we spend some time thinking, as we hold the, the elements, as we hold the symbols of your body and your blood, I pray, Lord, you'd 
you might speak to us about the difficult work you have for us to do. Um, maybe, Lord, it's time for us to tell you about our fears and our anxieties and uh, turn that over to you. But I thank you more than anything that the good king has come. That you chose to send Jesus Christ to suffer where we should suffer. Uh, and God, I pray you'd help us to serve him and glorify him while we wait for him to reign. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Because, as we studied this morning, um, God looks on our hearts. The Apostle Paul taught when he wrote to the Corinthians um, that before we participate in this meal, it's a good idea to examine our hearts. So, how's your heart? Do you have a heart like Samuel had at the beginning of this passage? Are you, are you frozen? Are you sort of paralyzed by what's happened to you in the past? By the circumstances around you? Do you have a heart that's just never relented to Jesus as Lord, as Master, as Savior? Do you have, do you have stuff you need to confess to Him? As the bread comes around, God looks on our hearts. Maybe it's time we looked in there too. As the guys come forward, I'll pray for the bread. Father, thank you for uh, what this bread symbolizes the body of our Savior who was put to death because of us and in our place. Commune with us as we examine our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. The night Jesus was betrayed, he was still God, always had been, always will be. And because he's God, he doesn't have to just look on outward appearances. He has the ability to look on hearts. And as he reclined at that table with that group of friends, what did he see in their hearts on that night? Did he see fear, confusion, anxiety? Did he see the propensity to deny him, abandon him? Of course he did. He's God. He looks on hearts. 
in spite of that, he took bread, he broke it into little pieces so that through all the fear and anxiety and whatever else they were carrying in their hearts, they couldn't miss this point. He gave each of them a little piece. He said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of him. If you believe in what we're symbolizing here around this table, this verse has been on my heart this morning. Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justified means we've been declared not guilty. We've got Jesus' perfection on our behalf. Therefore, we have peace with God. So whatever you just spent time confessing to God about from in your heart, God still, he looks on hearts, he wants willing hearts because he's got stuff he wants us to do. But listen, if you believe in Jesus Christ, when he looks in your heart, he does not see a wicked sinner anymore because you've been justified because you have peace with God through Jesus Christ. He wants your heart so that he can work through you to glorify Jesus. But when he looks on your heart, if you've believed in Jesus Christ, he sees the righteousness of his son. Father, as the the cups come around that symbolize the blood of your son. It is the blood that justifies. It is the blood that gives us peace with you. God, we want you to have our wills more and more, but thank you that you have already washed our hearts, that we have peace with you because of what Jesus did for us. Commune with us around the cup in his name. Amen. I take the bread of life broken for all my sin. Your body That's, what, that's why Jesus asked us to do this. He just says, whenever you do this, just remember me. Just remember what I did. When, Samuel, or when God was telling Samuel, go anoint the king, you know why? Because the, the problems you're worried about in Israel are going to be fixed by that king. Just get to work. Go get the king. For us, like we've already got the king. Like whatever scares us, worries us, whatever we feel like we're not getting that we need, ultimately we're, we've got it in the king. And so Jesus, would you get together and do this? Will you just remind yourself, put it in your body. The king has come. I'm coming again. 
and somehow everything that's wrong will be fixed because the good king has already been chosen and anointed. He told them that the cup symbolized the blood of the new covenant, the covenant in which we get the forgiveness of sins. And he told us when we do this to remember him. Amen. Thank you guys for being here. Love you lots. Stay and eat with us if you're hungry. See you next week.